Now we're going to get started. Um, hello, for those of you who don't know me, I am Christina Maxwell. Um, I have been lecturing here. I think this is my fifth year, which is weird. Um, it doesn't feel like that long. Um, but I haven't been here at all in like months um, because I have two kids. Well, I have three kids, but I have two kids that are school age and they're been learning at home with me on a computer until last week, and then they went back to school. So I'm glad to finally be back with y'all, um, except if I'm being totally honest, I'm super rusty. Um, I, like most of y'all, like feel like I have nothing to give anyone um, after this season of having my children at home in my house all of the time constantly and being their teacher and their mom and their referee and their Sunday school, you know, all of it. Um, but also I feel weird because I haven't been participating with y'all week in and week out. And I almost just feel like I don't even have a right to come in and like talk to y'all about Proverbs as you've been like wrestling and having great conversations. And anyway, I just want to say that. Sorry if this is terrible. Sorry if I say something that like... <laughs> Is if, I don't know. Um, but, and also just to say, like, Proverbs is hard. I'm really proud of y'all um, that you guys have been week in and week out doing this and getting in God's word and, you know, talking about hard things. And um, you're a blessing to me, even just knowing that y'all were still up here doing that. Um, so if you might let me enter into what you guys have been doing and talk about friendship and neighboring this week. Um, Okay, so I was going to start. Also, I'm sorry. It's like, I feel like my lecture today is just like super practical. So sorry if that's, I don't know. Let's just be really practical together and talk about wisdom and friendship. I hope everyone got a handout. Um, I'm not going to like read scripture because obviously Proverbs is like so weird how we're just pulling from like a million places. So I'm just going to kind of weave it throughout. Um, So here I'm starting just feels like I normally have that to start, but whatever. Um, okay, so this past weekend, David Brooks, who is normally a columnist in the New York Times, um, wrote a pretty daunting and I found somewhat compelling article in The Atlantic, and it's called America is Having a Moral Conver- Convulsion, and I would recommend anyone read it. Um, it's an interesting read. And in it, he argues that as a country, we are at a fateful moment of what he calls moral convulsion. And he walks through histories of other moral convulsions that our country has had and other countries have had. But he argues his central focus in his argument is on social trust, which is a measure of the moral quality of a society, of whether people or institutions are trustworthy, whether they keep their promises and work for the common good. His argument is that when people lose faith or trust in institutions and in each other, a nation collapses, and that America stands on the brink of such a collapse. Regardless of whether you or I really agree with his argument or his final conclusions um, and whether his predictions come to bear out or not, he presents some overwhelming evidence about the social trust in our society. And I want to start there today because I was just kind of like in shock reading this while in the middle of preparing to talk about friendship and neighboring. Okay, so he says that in 1997, he cites all this stuff, 64% of Americans had a great or good deal of trust in the political competence of their fellow citizens. So not like politicians or like literally just the people who live across the street. Today, only a third of Americans feel that way. 
Um, according to Pew Research polls, 49% of Americans believe that citizens' trust in each other has fallen because we are not as reliable as we used to be. 67% of those people who describe um, interpersonal competence as being a very big problem in our country believe that this issue is caused by social or community deterioration, specifically a lack of trust among neighbors. Um, Brooks points out that much like everything else in our society, trust is unequally distributed, affecting three marginalized groups the most, black Americans, lower middle class and working poor Americans, and young adult Americans. Um, So another study showed in 2018, 37.3% of black Americans felt that most people can be trusted. And two years later, that number has been cut in half. Among young adults aged 18 to 25, there's been a 73% increase in depression from 2007 to 2018 and a huge spike in suicides. And this is all before COVID. (laughs) We all know that COVID has made all of this worse. Um, So from a sociological perspective, the article is both fascinating and terrifying for anyone willing to accept Brooks's assessment and assertions about our country and our culture. He offers an explanation to the problems we can see and feel viscerally, heightened polarization, anxiety, and hate. But reading this article as a Christian, I also felt an invitation an invitation to be a part of rebuilding trust in our fellow man, right? Um, An invitation to be a trustworthy person and to raise trustworthy people and to be a force for good in our society. A renewed sense of purpose to bear the fruit of my faith with the work of my life as I pursue friendships and act as a force of good in my neighborhood, our community, and beyond. Um, To pursue people different than me. Which brings us to our topic today. What a perfect time to think together. I'm not trying to just like depress us, but I'm trying to say like, there's a problem. We all feel it. Like we can talk about it here. There's a big problem and we can actually be part of the solution. And so that's what we're going to, it's kind of like the lens I want to frame it today. Um, Obviously this is like age old wisdom. Solomon wrote these words so many thousands of years ago. And yet here we are today seeing the very need for what he's describing in our country. Um, okay, so I want to talk today about how God might be calling us into true friendships that he might use to transform our world through our faithfulness. The type of friendship I'm talking about is multi-layered. It results in maturity, growth, and refinement for both parties. Um, real friends who agree but also disagree. Friends who can applaud each other's strengths and challenge each other's weaknesses. Friends who enjoy life together, celebrate the highs and the low, struggle through the lows together. Friends who allow each other to be their own person and learn from points of disagreement. Friends who wrong each other and apologize and forgive one another. Friends who are selfless and charitable and kind. This type of friendship is what our culture and even our church and, and our families all right so desperately need. Um, Okay, so follow along in your outline. We're just going to, like, do this by talk by kind of just asking questions. Why do we need friends and neighbors? What, is it, what does this kind of world-changing friendship and neighboring look like? And then why should, who should we be friends with? And finally, how in the world do we do this? Okay. Also, these are, we're not going to spend the same amount of time on each of these questions. Like, why is it going to be super easy? Why do we need friends? Well, we 
were made for friendship. We, Genesis 2 tells us we were made in the image of a triune God who is inherently relational, and therefore we are inherently relational. Um, Proverbs 18, we saw, says, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He doesn't make sound judgment. Um, a man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. So we're not, it's not even like we're just meant to, like, you know, move about in the world with people, but, like, we actually need relationship, deep relationship. Um, so that's from the Bible. The Bible says you need it. It doesn't just say you need it. Actually, God commands us to make friends, right? Jesus says the biggest commandment is to love your neighbor, love God, and then love your neighbor as yourself, which would imply a relationship with another human being. Um, so psychologists and psychiatrists agree uh, friendships help increase our sense of belonging and they improve our self-confidence and help reduce stress and anxiety. Um, a recent UVA study on teenage friendships found that 15-year-olds who prioritize close friendships tend to have lower social anxiety and a higher sense of self-worth and fewer depressive symptoms by age 25 compared to their counterparts. And what's super interesting is that wasn't true for people who just felt well-liked or popular, but actually people who at 15 said that they had close friendships. And then on the other end of life, there's this study came out of Berlin that showed that living a socially active life, people in their 70s who were living a socially active life and prioritizing social goals were associated with a higher late life satisfaction and less severe declines toward the end of life. Um, also, super depressingly, psychologists say that loneliness is as has the same effect on your mortality as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. We were created for relationship, and we're going to get into why we were, but have I convinced you yet? Friendship is a good thing. We need it. We were made for it. Good. We're going to move on. So what is a wise friendship? What is a wise biblical friendship? Well, I've written some keywords right there. We're just going to like kind of approach it like an outline. Um, so wise friendship is constant. True friendship is marked by a commitment to one another. Um, this week we went back and looked at Ruth and Naomi's friendship and David and Jonathan's friendship, um, which are two really beautiful pictures of friends. Um, each one was marked by a strong commitment to each other. I mean, David and Jonathan like literally made a covenant with each other. Um, and Ruth, you know, the obviously fa famous, well-quoted verse, um, where you go, I will go. She like makes this promise to her, to her mother-in-law, um, despite having no social or legal obligation to do so. She was actually bringing quite a burden upon herself to do that, which we're going to get back to. Um, so these relationships are not transactional. They are not based upon what someone can give us or what is going on in their lives. Um, I think, it's often tempting to distance ourselves from friends if they're going through a hard time. Um, but this is precisely when our friends need us the most. And Proverbs says, in Proverbs 17, a friend loves at all times. A brother is born for adversity. Um, many see, And then in 19, many seek the favor of a generous man, and everyone is a friend to him. A man who gives gifts, but all a poor man's brothers hate him. How much more do his friends go far from him? The point is, a the constancy of wise biblical friendship is that there is not much that your friend can be going through or that you can be, you know, experiencing from them that will, like, cause your friendship to grow more distant. 
you're there. It doesn't matter what's going on in their lives. Okay, so real friendship, wise friendship is selfless and costly. Um, it involves putting other people's needs before our own. Friendship is just, it's going to cost you something, right? It's going to cost your time. It's going to cost your resources, your energy, and your emotions. Um, we have to be deliberate to actually maintain our friendships. I think we're really good about talking about marriage in this way. Um, and it's true for our friendships too. You know, relationships can't exist if we're not giving ourselves to them, giving our time, giving our energy. Um, and sometimes I think in our hyper-pragmatic, busy, uh, productivity, idolizing culture, it can feel very foolish to prioritize friends, especially friends who aren't, like, actively helping you do something. I really struggle with this as, like, a type A young mom who's, like, time by herself is very precious and, you know, not frequent. <laughs> oh, well, I should, like, call someone and, like, per- find out what's going on in their life. And that's just like never what comes to mind naturally. Um, (laughs) But the reality is they're going to cost you something. Uh, Again, David and Jonathan, I mean, Jonathan has this son, right, who's disabled. And when he dies, David takes care of him. David takes on the burden of Jonathan's disabled son. Um, And Ruth and Naomi talk about a cost. Like Ruth literally could have just been like, peace out, lady, go figure yourself out. I'm going to go find a new husband to like you know, so that I can live because women were not able to own property or have wealth by themselves. And instead she's like, no, like I'll hitch my horse to your wagon and like, we're going to be a package deal. So I'm going to date and try to find a suitor now. And that whoever, you know, is going to marry me is going to have to take on the burden of my dead husband's mom too, in addition to caring for me. Right. That, that limited her. That was costly. I'm sure there were many men that were like, yeah, no, not going to touch that with the 10 foot pole. Um, (laughs) so it's real friendship is selfly and it's costly. Um, next it's vulnerable. So true friendships involve putting ourselves out there. We have to share intimate things about our lives, our hopes and our dreams and our hurts and our pains. Um, David and Jonathan model this beautifully. They weep together. Uh, Tim Keller says it this way. Friends voluntarily give their hearts to one another. Um, so Proverbs 27.10 says, Do not forsake your friend and do not go to your brother's house in the day of your calamity. Because to turn to your brother instead of a friend in the day of your calamity is to like forsake your friend. That doesn't make any sense to me. And so you think about the fact like it's you're robbing your friend of an, a moment to actually come and love you and serve you. And see you in a vulnerable moment. Um, it's pretty like widely understood that like your family loves you at your worst. They have to, <laughs> and they're often a safety net for you financially, you know, circumstantially. But to actually invite a friend into an, a moment of need, well, that's vulnerable, right? And yet Proverbs is telling us that's what wise friends actually do. And and we might be robbing something of our friendships if we only turn to family in those moments of need. Um, wise Wise friends actually involve letting people care for us. Wise friendships do. Um, which means that wise friendships are going to have to be filled with grace and forgiveness <laughs> because of sin, right? Um, we all know that we are going to wrong each other and being more vulnerable with each other means that we're only going to open ourselves up to potentially being hurt, 
right? Um, so part of the reality of letting people in is that we have to give grace and freely offer forgiveness. Um, you know, Proverbs 10 says, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. And Proverbs 17 says, whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. Um, so in addition to being forgiving and, and overlooking maybe offenses where we could choose not to, we're also called not to like go to go to a friend, just like Matthew 18 does again, right? When they've wronged us to actually be honest and continue to be vulnerable in that way. Hey, that hurt my feelings. Hey, it bothered me that you didn't show up then. Blah, blah, blah. Um, and not go to other people with that information, which I'm really bad at my poor husband. He's like, just go talk to them. I'm tired of hearing you. Um, I'm kidding. He's so patient and kind. He doesn't say stuff like that. He should, um, (laughs) But we're, by doing that, we don't, we end up, if we don't do that, we end up hoarding up resentment or bitterness or anger or we gossip or we assign motives and impugn motives towards someone that we don't actually know, right? And it can really harm. So this is both like a call to living in this way of like grace and forgiveness means like we're going to have to repent and then also say hard things like, hey, you hurt my feelings, Um which moves us into the next one. Wise friendships are marked by empathy, sensitivity, and tact. Um, Because true friendships involve vulnerability, they're also going to require these three things. Um, Yeah, they're going to, we've said all this, but we need to hurt with those who are hurting, rejoice with our friends who are rejoicing. There's no room for jealousy. Proverbs makes that clear. Um, and practically, this just involves tack. It's probably like the most practical thing, right? Uh, there are some like weird verses, right? Whoever sings songs to a heavy heart is like one who takes off a garment on a cold day, like vinegar and soda. Like a madman who throws firebrands, arrows, and death is the man who deceives his neighbor and says, I'm only kidding. Let your foot be seldom in your neighbor's house, lest he have his fill of you and hate you. Whoever blesses his neighbor with a loud voice rising early in the morning will be counted as a cursing. Why would someone do these inappropriate things? Well, because they are not emotionally connected and therefore clumsy, right? So many of these things are like an, in a, like an they're inappropriate because they're like a, a lack of knowing the person that you're talking to. Um, singing happy songs to a mourning friend, well, that's just you being refusing to learn what's going on with them and empathize with them, right? Um, joking and hurting someone's feelings, but using humor to cover that up, well, that's not being very kind and sensitive, um, right? And, it, and, it's, and it's not really owning your sin and, and accepting forgiveness, whatever, offering forgiveness either. Um, knowing, overstaying your welcome, well, that's not being attuned to someone's needs or what they have going on the next morning or, or that afternoon or whatever, right? You can see how these things sound like just tact, but they're very connected to the heart, to a posture of pursuing people, of knowing what's going on in their lives, of um, Tim Keller, again, I keep referencing these books. I'm just going to show you all. I know, like, Lisa, you do such a better job than me of, like, not plagiarizing. Um, So many of these ideas are not my own. They come from this book, 
It's awesome. It's Tim Keller's uh, devotion called God's Wisdom for Navigating Life that he wrote with his wife about Proverbs, and it's really filled with so much wisdom. And then this book, Befriend by Scott Sauls. They're both pastors in our denomination. They're actually really good friends and work together. So I just side note, that's where I'm getting a lot of these ideas from. But in this book, Tim Keller calls it tying our hearts to each other. That if we've actually tied our hearts to one another in this kind of wise, biblical, godly friendship, we'll then we won't joke at their expense, right? And then we definitely won't double down and be like, I'm only joking, you're being sensitive. Um, or we'll know when to leave and when to come. Um, anyway, I just thought that was a helpful way of, because it can seem like some of this stuff, like Solomon's just being like, and then do this and then don't do that because that's what good people do. But it's actually very reflective of like, you know, a posture. Um, which then leads us into our final one of what a friendship looks like. Um, Finally, it's honest, which is going to involve wise counsel. So true friendship involves speaking into each other's lives. This is part of why we need friendship. Um, We need our friends' correction and advice. Um, Again, Keller calls these constructive clashes. Um, true and healthy friendships say hard things to each other when necessary. So that involves us first, obviously, to share things about our lives, because how in the world could you speak into somebody's life if you don't know anything about it? Um, and then also speak up when we know our friend needs correcting. And then on the flip side, it requires a posture that can be corrected, right? And who wants to share things about your life. Um, Proverbs 27 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy, Oil and perfume make the heart glad, and the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. And then iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. As in, I thought this was a good one. As in, water face reflects face, so the heart of man reflects man. That's the next verse, which she didn't include in our thing. From It's right after iron sharpens iron. And it's super interesting because it's like, this is a very unique relationship. And it's reminiscent of Genesis 2, right? When Adam is naming all the animals... And there's no, you know, what is it? There's no helper suited for him or there's no friend, whatever. Like, none of the animals are adequate companions for him. And that's when God makes Eve for him. And that's not just true of marriage, of, of the romantic relationship. It's true of our friendship. Um, and Solomon is saying, like, we need friends because water won't adequately show us ourselves. <laughs> Even though we can see, like, some distorted view of, like, a, you know, reflection, um, we actually need our fellow man. We need friends in order to be able to see ourselves. Um, So, in this book, Befriend, Scott Sauls talks a lot about this effect of true friendship. He calls it the sandpaper effect. So, iron sharpens iron, sandpaper. He says this, This kind of friendship that leads us to lay our lives down for each other's sake works a lot like two pieces of sandpaper being rubbed together. The friction causes sensations that initially irritate and burn, yet over time the effect on both pieces of sandpaper is the same. Both become smoother, not in spite of the friction, but precisely because of it. Um, so we're going to talk more about iron sharpening iron here in a second, but on the flip side, Proverbs also warns us that it's not just good to only be positive and encouraging with our friends. A refusal to have these hard conversations, constructive clashes can actually damage our friends. It doesn't help them to see themselves. Um, Proverbs 29.5 says, those who flatter their neighbors are spreading nets for their feet. So if you only say flattering things compliment someone, um, 
build them up. Like if you only, if you don't do it to just build them up or like be honest and kind, but instead to like gain advantage for yourself, you know, like you're afraid of saying hard things and you just want to maintain this friendship. So you only say nice things. You actually don't help them see themselves the way they need to. And then you leave. I like this imagery. Like you're literally (laughs) tripping them, right? You're like tying this net up around their feet so that they can trip. Um, so wise friendships are constant, selfless and costly, vulnerable, filled with humility, grace, and forgiveness and empathy and sensitivity intact. And they are honest and involve wise counsel. So next, who should we be friends with? Um, I think the reality is in our culture today, like everything, we tend to pursue friendships for personal gain. Um, we can call that transactional friendships. Like, there are natural organic friendships with people who are similar to us and have shared interests. But then there tends to be a desire um, to make friendships with people that are different than us because of what they can give to us. Think, like, it's good to have a mentor or, like, it's good to network, right? So that, like, when you need a new job or, like, a new something, like, you'll, you'll know people. Um, I'm not saying we only do that, but there's definitely a, a thrust of that in our society. And... Um, Okay, I, I don't even know that I reminded y'all of this, but my, my husband is the youth pastor here, so we work a lot with our youth. Um, and I'm always reminded, like, popularity is, remember, such a big one. And I love, like, saying that because it's so easy for us to talk about high school as if we all don't care to be popular anymore either. But it's so tempting, right, to be friends with people and for these girls that I get to walk along life with because it's going to earn them praise and, like, people will like them and think they're cool. Um All to say, I don't think we're really exempt from this either. Um, So when we ask, who should I be friends with? I think sometimes the answer is like, well, what's going to bring me the best thing in life? Or like, you know, add um, more fame, glory, connections, whatever in life. Um, And then I think we also tend to ask, like, who do I not have to be friends with in life? Right? (laughs) Like, okay, who are the people that are like, difficult and annoying and unkind and like I just kind of want to avoid them maybe they're the unpopular people and by association you would be considered unpopular we deal with that a lot in youth group too right um the unliked people because it sounds like a burden to have to love these people or because maybe we're scared to move toward people who are different than us um or I think sometimes because we're worried that being friends with bad people will make us bad people that's another one that comes up a lot in the youth group um This isn't a new phenomenon, asking who should be our friends, right? Obviously, Solomon has some words for us here. But Jesus was actually asked the same question. Um, In Luke 10, I'm sure you all are all familiar with it. He's asked, what do I need to do to go to heaven? And Jesus replies, well, you know the law. And he's like, yeah, love God and love your neighbor. And he's like, great. Who is my neighbor? Looking to like, okay, I need like that definition. Who are the people that I have to love so I can check it off and I can get into heaven, right? And we all know that Jesus replies frustratingly probably with a story (laughs) about um, the Good Samaritan and how, y'all familiar with the story? Okay, I'm going to skip it for time's sake, like telling y'all the story. Um, So Jesus responds with this parable And the story, and in the story, the enemy of the Jewish people is the one who showed up, um, sorry, a Samaritan is laying there hurt, right? And their enemies, the Jews and the Samaritans, but this 
No, the Samaritan shows up and a Jew is laying there beaten and in need, right? And the Samaritan helps him and takes care of him and pays for him and comes back and checks on him. And it's very clear that the good neighbor is the Samaritan who showed mercy even to his enemy. Um, And in doing so, in answering the question in this way, Jesus basically said, there is no one that you can not count as your neighbor, right? Um, There's no boundary for the people who are outside of our call to love. But we shouldn't, and like that's a word for us today. That's a temptation. Our temptation is to ask who, you know, to like make an exclusive list. But we can't exclude anyone. Um, But I don't think we should just stop it. We can't exclude anyone. We actually can make a bolder statement than that. It's actually good to be friends with people who are different than you. Um, Different life experiences, ages, health conditions, socioeconomic backgrounds, skin colors, different family situations, even different faiths. Um, This is where we'll go back to iron sharpening iron. Um, Okay, I'm running out of time. I wrote way too much here, y'all. I just had so much I want to say. Okay, so sometimes I think when we think of iron sharpening iron, we think of, like, two Christian friends. Like, okay, I'm a, I'm a part of a mom's group, and it's um, Kelly and Rebecca and Patricia. Like, we're all really good friends, right? And we have our little group, and, like, our friendship was pretty natural in the sense that it was at church, and they assigned us to each other, and our kids are about the same ages. And I think iron sharpening iron, sometimes we only think of it in terms of, like, we're all at a play date, and I'm speaking harshly to my child. I won't name which one probably would invoke that. Um, And Rebecca kind of pulls me aside and is like, hey, that was a little mean. Maybe you could like, should maybe be like a little more gentle and loving. Um, And think that would be a helpful rebuke and reminding me of my commitment to love my children well, even though they can be very irritating. Or maybe I'm sharing a prayer request and I end up kind of gossiping about my mother-in-law, which is something I would never do. Um, And someone kind of says, hey, maybe we should, like, get back to talking, you know, like, kind of holding me accountable to who they know I want to be and not use my words in that way. Um, And I think those are examples of iron sharpening iron. But I'm also going to say it involves being challenged in our beliefs by people who think differently than us, too. Um, Or just being patient with people who are frustrating (laughs) Um, or even slow, or who don't have the best social tact and might hurt our feelings. Um, So Scott says, real friendship happens when we move toward the people we are most tempted to avoid. These are the people who are best equipped to challenge our perspectives, push our buttons, and require us to put on love. So in addition to that kind of like calling each other out on our sin mentality of like making us better, Scott's whole book is actually based on the premise that pursuing people who are different than us will just naturally have that sandpaper, iron sharpens iron effect um, by just living together. I mean, let's think about it. Like, how could you be benefited from a friendship with a younger person if you are old, if you're older or an older person if you're younger? Like, imagine what that friendship could do to sow seeds of unity among what feels like very divided generations today. Um, And just what naturally being together and talking about things, you know, you'd have to, you become more patient and kind and empathetic and loving, right? Just by the nature of being together, not by necessarily sinning against each other or whatever. Um, Imagine how enriched our lives could be to love someone with a disability or someone who lives with chronic pain. 
Those people can be hard to love, sure. And they might need something more from you than someone else, and they might not be, you know, networking you to a better job or something. But think about what you could learn about relying upon the Lord in the midst of suffering and pain just by that friendship. And in that way, actually become more smooth, right? Um, I mean, I think about this with, like, the poor, right? Like, that's why close proximity to the poor, it's not, I think we often think about charity, like, oh, I can help you. And we talk about that in this, this lesson this week, you know, don't be, give what you can to your neighbor in need and don't think about it and you're sinning if you don't. But also being close to the poor, what, what would that do to teach you what it looks like to humbly rely on God, right? To, or to, to not know, to not have security about tomorrow, um, what a gift that could be in friendship. What a way that could smooth you out. Um, someone is a different race than you. I mean, obviously, race is front and center right now after the events of this summer. And it's so tempting to have our own ideas and think we know everything about everything. What does it look like to actually have a close relationship with someone who's a different color skin than you, who maybe didn't have the same experiences as you? I think it would probably make you less quick to like want to take a side and more just want to ask, Hey, how does this feel? How are you processing this? How much could we learn from that? Um, I could go on and on and on. Uh, and I'm going to skip this whole next part, which is honestly probably my favorite part. But basically, finally, we're going to end with how and get super practical as if we haven't already been. Um, but we must, this doesn't happen just like naturally. I think that's my whole point, right? And especially in our society today. So I think it's hard to read Proverbs. And I was a little frustrated that she put like neighboring and friendship together because it was like, whoa, these seem like two different topics. And I want to talk about both so much, right? Um, Like being a good neighbor and being generous and charitable the way she pointed us toward those verses. And then like just having good, godly, wise friendships. And then I realized, oh, my belief that that's true is probably actually an indictment on my friendships (laughs) and maybe even on our culture because we don't in Solomon's day and in Israel, right? This wasn't so easily separated as I, as it is in my life, what it means to like be a good neighbor to those around me or be charitable to those in need as like looking at my friendships and maintaining them. Like those are all like kind of three spheres in my life. And that was not true for them. They lived among the needy and the poor. They knew them. They knew them by name. Um, they knew how to care for them. Charity was done in a very face-to-face way, not in, you know, some more anonymous, vague kind of way, which was convicting to me and, and was proof to me that we are going to have to be so much more intentional to make these types of relationships is what I'm trying to say. Um, so how do we do that? Um, well, I think we do it. This is all like super scary and hard, right? I don't really like having conversations with people who think differently than I do. Once I've decided I'm right about something, right? That's not very fun to like invite different opinions in. If I'm relying, if I want to justify myself by being smart and right and accurate about something, right? Um, I don't really want to like love hard people to love if I view myself as like so special and important that I don't have to give people my time. Um, which brings us to Jesus, right? The, the true friend, um, the, the friend of all friends who Romans 5 tells us while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Um, meaning while we were still enemies, we were still against him. He died for us, right? In John 15, he tells, 
His disciples, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. So those two truths actually are what propel us into the world to do this hard work um, of making friends, of being vulnerable, of being empathetic, of opening ourselves up to learning from different people, um, of even making intentional decisions to pursue people who are different than us. Um, Right To be a good friend, you must know that your worth doesn't come from your friendships or your social acceptance or your achievements. To know that you were once an enemy of the living Lord and he died for you to win you back humbles you to say, like, I'm not better than anyone else, right? Which I'm tempted to do. Um, My time is no more valuable than anyone else's. Um, yeah, Jesus is the antidote. I think often we look to our relationships to validate us, to validate our ideas, to validate the way that we're living, and that's what makes us so afraid to go out and like meet different people. Jesus is the antidote to that, right? He tells you, don't look to your success or your friendships or your social clout um, for your identity. Look to me. And when we're doing that, then we can go love other people. Um, I have tons of like practical stuff, but I'm going to skip it all. Okay, let me pray for us, and we can go. Um...